I was thinking about this idea this week. Um, it's a key idea, important for life, for our own thriving and the thriving of the people that are in our lives. And that is that uh, we should never lose sight of who we are. We should never lose sight of who we are. Because every time that you and I lose sight of who we are, we open the door for a lot of problems to come into our lives. For instance, if you uh, go into a conversation or a space with other people and you forget that you are just like them and you begin to believe that you are above them, that you're superior to them, if you lose sight of that reality, that you're not better than anyone, you can get into a lot of problems. Likewise, if you have opportunities that are presented to you in life and you see yourself beneath of who you truly are, if you forget your self-worth and your value and the fact that you are loved and that you have been purposed by God, you can miss out on a lot of great opportunities in life and so we should never lose sight of who we are. Many of you guys know that every Sunday morning before I start my, my preaching marathon, I actually go for a run. And uh, I wake up early, uh, I put on my running shoes, and I go running. Now I, I go running uh, on Deering, on Deering Estates, and uh, they, they have that little amazing road there in the back uh, with, with that little Chinese bridge, and, and that's an amazing place that's filled in, with nature, and I get to run, and I get to pray as I am running, and I'm not saying that God is in the things that I'm seeing, the trees, the birds, uh, but he is present. He is present. We don't believe that God is in these things, but he is, he is present nevertheless. And these things, they communicate God's glory to us. And so as I am running, I'm praying, and God is helping me to get to a place where I can deliver the message because I am praying for things like, God, help me to say that which you want me to say. And if I have to uh, open space in the message that I have prepared during this week so that I can speak your words. I want to do that. And, and, and then I also pray for things like, God, help me to feel and sense the pain of the people that I am preaching to. Give me a burden for them. I'm doing that. It's, it's a holy moment. It's a sacred moment for me every Sunday morning before I get up and preach. And, and it works for me much better than if I were to sit down on my desk with an open Bible and pray. I mean, it just, it just all comes very much alive to me when I'm doing that. But sometimes I, I must say that I'm disrupted in that moment of sacredness, of focus and holiness. And I'm, I'm, I'm disrupted in that moment by cyclists. Okay, so if you are a cyclist here, I have a, a big issue with you. And, and, and especially when I'm running endearing, that's not exclusive for bikes. It's not. And so, so I'm running there, you know, on Sunday mornings, and this, they did this to me today. Watch out. Watch out. Step aside. It's like, there's, this is not a bike path. This is a road. Like, it's, it's wide enough. We can all fit here. And earlier in the year, I was making that run, and I was running, and I was in the middle of something, you know, I'm listening to music, and God was speaking to me, and then I hear this peloton of bikes, get out of the way, pay attention, <laughs> and I'm like running in the grass, and I was like, what is going on here, and so, okay, 
All right, let me get back to my zone. And I'm, so I'm, I'm back. And then five minutes later, five minutes later, the same thing happens again. Get out of the way. Pay attention. And I'm like, you jerks. I start running after them. I'm going to tell you something here. That's why you guys get into accidents here in Miami. I'm like. And then I'm thinking to myself, wait, I'm a pastor. <laughs> what if one of those bikers is going to be at church this morning? And I, and I, and I threaten to do something to them. And that's not cool. And, and then I'm thinking, and I, and I was praying. I, I was in a moment of prayer, connecting with God. Okay, what am I doing? What's going on? At that very moment, I was reminded of who I was and what I had been called to do. And I was recentered. It took a while to recenter, <laughs> but but I was recentered. And I think that um, as we go through the series in the book of Thessalonians, we arrive at this place in, in, in the letter of Thessalonians. This is the last part of the letter, the first letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, where, where he reminds them of who they are as a church. Every time that the Apostle Paul closes a letter, uh, sometimes we skip through and we don't even read those last few verses because it gets really personal and very practical. He's naming names and he's talking about real situations and real people. We skip through it and we forget to pay attention in, in those key verses because uh, we, we want to get to the body of teachings. And, and when we do that, we, uh, we forget to see, because there's an opportunity there in every letter for us to see the heart of Paul for the church and his intentions as he is always trying to remind them of who they are. Because he's saying, hey, there are people here in the churches, people, and he's saying, this is what we're here for. Don't get too caught up with that and this. He, he is reminding them of who they are. That's always how he ends his epistles. And I think that we're in a season in the church, especially in America, where the church has forgotten who they are. Many of us have forgotten who the church, uh, what the church is and, and what's the purpose for the church. And, you know, if, if you look at the statistics in the last four or five decades, church attendance has been declining consistently in America. And, and I think it's because there's many reasons, but one of the reasons is because we have forgotten who we are as a church. And we've gotten involved with things that we should have never gotten involved to to begin with. And, and we've turned the church into different things that Jesus did not intend to turn the church into. And so there always is an opportunity for us to be reminded of who we are so that we can be recentered. And that's what we're doing here. And this is where we find these words of the Apostle Paul. It's in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 24. This is what he writes to the church. He says, uh, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I must admit that I was tempted to preach only in these verses, but it would have been very self-serving. So I'm going to move on. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may 
the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. This is the word of the Lord. As the Apostle Paul reminds them of who they really are as he, through these words, does the same to us. There's a few things that are clear in this passage. First, this passage tells us what the church is. Secondly, it tells us what the church is not. Thirdly, it tells us what God's work in the life of the church is, what God is doing in the life of the church. And then lastly, how do we take part in the work that God is doing in the church? How do we join God in building and, 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 and uh, you know, making the church blameless, as the text tells us? How do we partake in that work? That's the last thing. I'm going to try to fly through the first three points, and I want to spend a little bit more time on point four with you today. But, but first question, which I think this text answers really well, is uh, wh- what is the church? What, what the church is? Is. I don't know if you were paying attention as we were reading this very short passage. This is a, a, a passage that's filled with some of the shortest verses in Scripture. Uh, verse 25, for instance, that we did not read says, brothers, pray for us. That's the verse. And then verse 26, it says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. That's a very short verse too in Scripture. But in this very short passage, with all these practical applications to the church in Thessalonica, uh, there's a word that's repeated here at least five times. And that is the word brothers. That is the word brothers. Uh, Every time that the Apostle Paul gets very practical in applying doctrine to the life of the church, to real situations and problems that are going on in the life of the church, he always makes sure that they start from a place where they understand that they are family. We're we're dealing here with family. At the end of the day, we're not dealing here with opponents. Uh, At the end of the day, we are not dealing here uh, with uh, people that are uh, uh, completely uh, apart from this family. Uh, We are dealing with family members. We're not dealing with co-workers. We're dealing with family members. He makes sure that they understand that they are brothers and sisters. We are siblings in Christ. The church is the family of God. Now, there's only one family of God throughout the world. There's a big C church. That church extends through uh, geographical lines and generations. Uh, There are people that are part of our family that have worshipped God several hours ago in another hemisphere. There are people in the southern hemisphere that are worshipping Jesus right now with you and I, and they are our siblings in Christ. There's the universal church of God. That's the one family that God has, and all have come to this family through Jesus Christ that has adopted us through that which he has done on the cross and in the empty grave so that we as Jesus could have a seat at God's table. That is the family of God, the community of all of those who have entrusted their lives to Jesus Christ. That is the family of God. But then there are local expressions of that family as well. Even though there's one large family uh, in regions, there are local expressions of that family. And Crossbridge Church is a local expression of the family of God. We are not the only family in Miami. We're not the only expression of God's family in Pinecrest or in this part of town here. We are one of the expressions of the body of Christ 
in this region. We are one of the expressions of the body of Christ in the world. And we are all connected through the Spirit of God who is the bond of peace, who is the God who lives in all of us because we have received Jesus as our Savior. That is what the church is. This is what this church is. And I think this is an important distinction for us. This is an important idea for us to grasp because I want you to understand that every time that we gather together, we are gathering as the family of God. We are around a table where God is the Father who is covenant to feed us, to nurture us, to care for us, to build us up, not individually as well, but together. He has vowed to do that together. He has vowed to build his family. This is, this is the primary place where God is at work, the local church. It just works that way. God works in the context of the local church. And that for us should be uh, a matter of identity. We should see this as uh, our main identity. Uh, we are many things in life. Uh, you are many things in life. You are uh, part of a certain social class. You're part of a certain race. You have a, a certain career or profession. And you can identify yourself as any of these things. But what comes first for every Christian is the fact that you have been saved by Jesus, that you are a Christian, that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. The problem in our lives becomes whenever we put any other label of identity ahead of who we are in Christ. Before anything, before anything, we are Christians. This is a matter of identity, and we must not forget this. Every time that you are disturbed by cyclists in life, all right, you should remember this first. You are a Christian. You are redeemed by Jesus Christ. That comes before the fact that you are a lawyer. It comes before the fact that you're Hispanic. It comes before the fact that you are a man or a woman. It comes before anything. That's what you should remember. You are a child of God through Jesus. You are a son and you are a daughter. It's a matter of identity. You should not forget that. Number two, this is a matter of priority. I, I think that you understand the principle that family should always come first. Family should come first. Family should come before your work. Family should come before your hobbies. If you put your hobbies before your family, you're going to create a problem. If you put your work before your family, you're going to create a problem. Some of you have disgraced your families because you have put work before your family. Work and accomplishment has become more important than spending time with your children, spending time with your spouse. Some of you spend too many time, too, too many hours doing sports, golfing, biking, whatever, and you have no time for your family. You have put recreation, your hobbies ahead of your family. It becomes a problem. I don't know if you knew this, but I was reading this several years ago about uh, the people that have done the uh, Ironman triathlons. How many of you have done Ironman triathlons? You know what they say? That the people that train for Ironman triathlons uh, have a high chance of getting a divorce in the process of their training. They say that one in three or one in four usually get a divorce when they start training for an Ironman because they have to swim crazy hours and run crazy hours throughout the day and they don't have time for people that are in their lives for their family and they end up getting a divorce. So anytime you put family second, third on your list, you're going to create a problem. This is just common sense. 
But it's the same thing, too, when it comes to your spiritual family. Your spiritual family should take priority. There's got to be intentionality for you to break bread and develop deep and meaningful relationships in the context of the church. Doing church on Sundays is not enough. And the Apostle Paul wants them to understand this idea. And they did life together back in those days much better than we do life together today. We see each other at church. Oh, I haven't seen you in a month. Oh, my goodness, this is so great. And then you have to wait another month to see the person. Hey, how are, how are things? There is no contact between, you know, the times that you see each other on a Sunday basis. There's got to be more to that. There's got to be intentionality. And uh, family life. It should be a matter of priority for us. And here's a third thing too. It's a matter of growth. There's no possibility. Let me tell you this. There's no possibility for you to grow spiritually outside of the confines and the dynamics of the Spirit of God at work in the life of the church. That's just how it works. Jesus just chooses to bless in a special way his covenant community. Now, that's not to say that God will... Um, kick you out of his family if you're far from the fellowship of the local church. The, the uh, prodigal son can run away from home. He never loses his status, but he's far from the father. He's far from his siblings. There's no way for you to grow close to the father. If you're apart from your siblings in Christ, there is only one way for you to grow spiritually, and that is within the context of the local church, Okay. It's a matter of growth. And so I, I, I want you to understand what the church is, and I want you to uh, understand the weight of everything that I'm saying here and that you, there would be margin, enough margin created in your life for you to invest in the local church. It's that important. Now, now here's what the church is not. The church is a family. The church is the family of God. But the church is not a perfect family. If the church were a perfect family, the Apostle Paul would have not had to write to them what he writes here, saying, brothers, be at peace among yourselves. Okay? Because if they had no conflict among them, if everybody got along perfectly, you would not have the need to say, be at peace among yourself. But in every church, in almost every letter that the Apostle Paul writes, especially towards the pastoral instructions at the end of the letters, he is always talking about their relationships because it was messy. And every time that I read these last portions of the letters and, and him talking about the relationships, receive this person, oh, that other time you did not receive that other person well, and at this time make sure that it's different, I am comforted because I... I begin to see that the church that I pastor is not the only church that has relationship problems. There always existed and there always will be until Jesus comes to uh, save and, 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 and take his church like we read last week. Until that day, until the uh, new heavens and new earth come down to earth until the new Jerusalem comes down and takes over, the church will always be imperfect. It will always be filled uh, with people like you and I that have issues uh, like you and I. You know, some of you have been hurt by the church in the past and, and you've had a hard time coming back to church and maybe you're here, you were invited by somebody and you have no idea of what a church is like and what the people... Uh, in this room are like, how they live out their lives. But I'm going to tell you something 
Uh, they all have problems like you do. And the minute that you join a church, you increase our amount of problems uh, because you are a sinner, another sinner that's joining our community with your own baggage, with your own issues. And these things are prone to happen. Disruption and the pe- at the peace and the relationship level of the church, they happen. I mean, look at the list of of types of people that the Apostle Paul lists that were present in that church. But when I read it, I say it's present in every church. It's present in my church as well. Verse 14, he says, and we urge you, after he says, be at peace among yourselves, he says in verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. So we're talking here about the idle. Who are the idle? The lazy Christians, okay, that show up on church on Sunday, don't do anything during the week, don't do anything to help, don't serve Sometimes they sit in the back and they're throwing rocks at everyone that's working. Statistics is clear. I'm not lying here when I say that usually in every community, not only churches, but particularly churches, 20% of the people do the work for the rest of the 80% that are present. Am I lying when I say that? And so he's saying, oh, there's a lot of people that just show up to these meetings to eat, to be fed. And some of you come into church and you're like, I hope that the sermon is good today. It's, it's got to be worthwhile my time because I made a huge sacrifice not going to the beach today. And so it better be a great sermon. It better be. Otherwise, I'm staying home watching NASCAR next Sunday. That's exactly what I'm going to do, right? Or then you come and you're like, oh, wait a minute. I hope that my kids are excellently taken care of. I hope that they're truly entertained. I don't want any teacher coming and interrupting me in the middle of worship to solve their problems because they should be doing their job. You know, I, I don't want that to happen. I, 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 I want to relax. I want to think. I want to be fed. And we're always thinking about our needs and how our needs can be met. And many of us are not putting in the work. And Paul, the apostle Paul said, hey, there are some of you in the church in Thessalonica that are like that. And I'm like, amen. There's some in my church like that too, apostle Paul. And then he talks about the faint-hearted. Who are the faint-hearted? In every church, they're faint-hearted. The faint-hearted are those that lack courage, those who are cowardly, those who avoid risks. They don't risk their finances. They don't risk their time. They don't risk their reputation. They don't risk their social status in any way for the advancement of the kingdom of God because they're controlled by comfort. And there were those back in that church in those days, and there's those in our church today. And he says, and then there are the weak. Okay, so the idle, then there are the faint-hearted, the wimps, and then there are the weak. Who are the weak? The weak, every time that the Apostle Paul talks about the weak, these are people that are constantly struggling with sin in life. There are particular sins that they are constantly repeating its patterns. They've never been set free from those patterns of sin. We're talking about people here that have an issue with self-control. We're talking uh, here about people that have some serious addictions. We're talking here about uh, a, a people who have a, a huge problem with pride and, and you know they repent but they come back and they fall into the same patterns of sin. And you said, there are people like that in your church. There's people like that in our church, and he's saying, look, here's, here's how I want you to relate to people like that, because the church is not a perfect family. It's a family. It's not a perfect family. First, you must adjust your expectations about this family. 
It's very important that as you come to church, as you start being more involved in the life of this church. Uh, so for some of you who have been part of this church for many years and you're bothered by all the stuff that sometimes people do around you, you have to be reminded of this and you should adjust your expectations of what the church is all about. You know, a huge problem with us too, relationally speaking, is we don't have the right expectations sometimes going into relationships. Uh, how, how many times have I sat down with couples who are struggling in their marriage? And sometimes it's like 5, 10, 20 years. I remember a conversation that I had with a couple that was thinking about a divorce after being married for 20 years. And when I started asking questions why, they had a disagreement of how to spend their money. They had a disagreement of how to raise their children. They had a disagreement of how to spend their time. They had a disagreement about each other's careers. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I started listening to all that, and I stopped, and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys have been married for 20 years. Okay, wait, before you got married, as you were contemplating marriage, did you guys talk about this? Hey, how, how are we going to spend our money? How, how are we going to raise our kids? You talk about, no, 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 I, I didn't think it was going to be a problem at all. Why? Because you're always thinking that things are going to go in the same way that you were raised to deal with that particular topic or issue. And you don't expect that somebody else has a different point of view. And now you're getting into trouble in marriage and huge conflicts and disagreements, sometimes conflict that uh, becomes very hard to solve because you did not have the right expectations going into marriage to begin with. And the same happens in the context of the church. Some of you have come in with different expectations. You're expecting something that does not exist. So the Apostle Paul writes this to them and to us to adjust our expectations about the church. Live at peace with one another. Yeah, because there's conflict happening all around us all the time. But then he says, I, I want you to be proactive, not passive, about upkeeping the peace at church, and, and the word peace here is is, uh, is 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 not how we normally understand the word peace, like the absence of conflict. Uh, this is a word that flows from the Hebrew shalom, which means the full flourishing of all things. And what the apostle Paul is trying to get them to understand and us to understand is this, that we should be committed, we should be intentional, that not only we are flourishing as individuals, but everyone around us is flourishing in every way. And we have to be committed, therefore, to that kind of peace. So he says, this is how you relate to that. And then lastly, hear how, how, how this shows up in your life, right? When you are committed to the full flourishing of your community, here's how it shows up. What does he say? That you are patient with one another. Look, look at what he says here. And we urge you to admonish the idol, encourage, so admonish, encourage, and help all work we must do. And then he closes off verse 14 by saying, be patient with them all. How many times do, did I want to go off on people that were frustrating me in the context of the church? How many times have you been in that situation? Like I was. I mean, like I, the same way that I felt towards those cyclists, I, sometimes I feel towards people. But the Spirit of God always comes to remind us to say, hey, just be patient. You know why we should be patient with one another? Because not everyone is going at the same speed that you are. 
Not everyone has entered the faith in the same place that you have entered the Christian faith. And by the way, you were not part of the family of God because God looked at you and said, oh, this is a winning horse. I'm going to bet on that person. Oh, that guy, that woman is going to accomplish great things for me. They've done so well so far. I'm going to bring them into my family. That's not how it has worked. God has found us in our poverty and our misery, and he has brought us into his family only by grace. We were brought in by Jesus. And so the same grace that has brought us into the family of God, that has allowed us a seat at the table with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit, should be the same grace that should be present in us as we relate to those that frustrate us deeply in the context of the church. And by the way, that works for marriage too. So be committed to shalom, to peace, and be patient. Because this is what God is doing to us. This is the work that God is doing in the church. I mean, God is patient with us. If God was not patient with us, if God was not patient with you, where would you be right now? The very reason why you have been saved is because God has been patient with you. It's the basis for his salvation. It's his patience towards us because he is committed to the future of his body. He is committed to the future of his family, the church. Look look at what we read in the last few verses. Go, Go to verses 23 and 24. Now, may the God of peace himself, he is the God of shalom. He's the God that, because he's the God of shalom, he's the God that exercises patience towards us. Uh, He himself will sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look how he ends, look how he ends in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He is committed to the welfare of his church, Big C Church. He is committed to the welfare of the local expressions of his church. And because of that, he is committed to the welfare and the thriving of Crossbridge Church. There are seasons and times in life that I'm worried, oh, well, what's going to happen to the church and et cetera. And sometimes I lose nights of sleep and the Lord reminds me, hey, listen, man, why why are you worried about this? That's my church. I'm committed to its welfare. I'm committed to its future. And that's a huge source of comfort for me and it should be for you because if he is committed to his church and we know that his church is his family, and you are part of his family. You know what that means? That he is committed to your future as well. He is committed to your thriving as a part of his family and his body. He's committed to you. What are you worried about? And that is so great for us to think about. You know, I know it sounds cliche to say the best is yet to come, but yeah, the best is always yet to come when we're a part of God's family. Because he's not going to leave us nor forsake us. And the promise is always there in Scripture that your father and mother may leave and forsake you. But I never will. I will always take you in. He is committed to the success of this church. He is committed to the success of your marriage. He's committed to the success of your career. He's He's committed to the success of your life. But you must not forget who you are. You must not lose sight of who you are. You are a son and you're a beloved daughter of Jesus and you're part of his family. You get to sit at his table. You have time and intimacy with him, which begins now to lead us to the last part 
which is so, if this is what God is doing in the life of his church, if he's perfecting his church, if he's making his church look more and more like him each day, if he's exercising an amazing amount of patience towards us, if it's all really by grace, if, how do I participate in his work? Because here's the truth of the matter. The way in which God works in the life of his church is through people. There's no Star Wars God, the force that comes over and, and does, you know, crazy things. I mean, God does amazing things in our lives through people. It's a word that is given to us, it's brought to us, it's, it's, a, it's a shoulder for us to weep on that's offered to us. It's, it's, it's a hand that's extended for help. It's, it's this type of work, the, the admonishment, the encouragement, the help that he talks about here. It's through people that God builds his church. Do you want to see God at work even more than he is in the life of this church? Yeah. Just say, here, I, I am here. I, I want to take part in the work that you're doing in the life of this local expression of your family. And you know what that means practically for us? I mean, you know, if we get to that place, if we ever get to this place where we're saying, I, I want to be a vessel, an instrument, I want to be a real member of this family. I don't mean to be a nominal member of the family. There's a lot of nominal members of families. You don't want to be a nominal member. You want to be a real participant. You want to show up for dinner every night. You hear what I'm saying? You want to go on vacations together. You don't want to plan your own vacation apart from your, fam- from your family. You want to, and I, this is figuratively, by the way, okay, just talking here at the church. Right? I hope you're getting the point here. I don't mean that I'm inviting all of you to go on vacation with me together. Although I do like to go on vacations, Beth and I, with some of you, and hope that would continue into the future. But I want you to understand that if you ever get to that place saying, hey, I really want to be not just a nominal member of the family of Christ, but I want to be a participant. I want to help to build the body of Christ locally here. This means uh, one thing that is key, that's very present here in this text, and that is that you are committed to worship. You are committed to gathering with other believers. You can't do that uh, without congregating, without being with one another, without worshiping God. You know why? Because when we worship, you know what we do? We're just focusing on the Father. We're recentering our attention at the one who's sitting at the head of the table, who is nurturing us and feeding us, and who has vowed to prom- and promised to keep us into eternity. The problem here in this church in Thessalonica and the problem in every church is because sometimes we lose sight of the Father when we begin to focus on the problems and in the deficiencies of other people that are part of the family. We start looking around the table and looking, ah, this person shouldn't be here. I can't stand this other person. Let me move seats. God, can you just uh, give me a seat that's very far from this person at the table? We begin to focus on people's flaws, and no wonder you're always constantly frustrated because you come to church to point out the errors instead of focusing on the Father. (laughs) And the way in which we recenter everything is we start focusing on the Father and being at his table and, 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 and looking at all his proclivities and worshiping him because of that. I mean, like, look, if you go to verses 16 and 18, if you have the text still open in front of you. All the practices that he lists here, commentators will tell you, they are here because Paul is talking about their corporate assemblies of worship. When he says rejoice always, why do we gather on Sundays? 
to rejoice in that which Jesus has done for us. It's, 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 it's a moment of rejoicing. It's not a moment of mourning. It's a moment of rejoicing. Why do we pray? Pray without ceasing. Why do we pray? Because that's how we talk to God in the context of corporate worship. Give thanks in all circumstances, right? It doesn't matter. If we have a bad week or a good week, we show up here because this is an opportunity for us to reorient our week, which starts on Sunday, by the way, and not on Monday, with the thanksgiving given to the Father, And then he goes and he says, don't quench the spirit. Why? Because when I come in here, I open margin and space and room like we sing in that song for the spirit to work. I don't walk in here with the spirit of negativity. Crossing my arms, this is the equivalent of the middle finger every time that I'm preaching and I see people like that. I'm not saying that uh, you don't have to decross your arms. Most of you don't do that. But when when you come open, God speaks. And he works because you have come here with a posture to receive. So don't quench the spirit. And if the spirit is speaking to you as God is speaking through this sermon or in the service, respond. Don't say, I'm going to do that later. And God's saying, oh, this part of your life, you need to change. You say, okay, I, I, okay, let's, let's do this. Okay. If he says, you need to pray now, you pray now. You respond. Don't quench the spirit. You open margin for the spirit to be at work in your corporate gatherings. And you, and you don't despise prophecy, okay? Prophecy is what the teaching of God that comes into your life. You don't despise that. You take that very seriously. And obviously he says here you measure things and sometimes there's things that's not 100% correct and good. You know, all preachers are subject to, uh, to failing and interpreting the text and etc. But you always retain what is good. That's what he says here. You don't despise prophecy. You take that very seriously. It's as if God is speaking directly to you. You don't neglect corporate worship. This is so important, guys. So important. Uh, let me illustrate you this way. I, I have this way to illustrate you. I thought about this this week. Um, yeah, well, we can go back to that verse later. But, 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 you know, you see this line here. In this line, there are 168 little lines in this line. This line represents your week. Your week has 168 hours. That's what you have every week. And I was thinking about how do I spend my week? How do I spend these 168 hours? And how do you spend your 168 hours? And, and, and then I was trying to make an average for all of us. I thought about this. Here's how it works. About a third of your week, a third of what your 168 hours, you spend sleeping, okay? So about a third of it goes away. Now, some of you have just had babies, and you're about at a fifth. See what I'm saying? But it'll get back to one third. Just have faith and hope. He will bring you there. He's committed to your future. I just said that. Another third is spent with work. And if you're a student, it's with schoolwork. And, you know, the public school system is so much work. They come home with all these homeworks. And, but, but that takes about two-thirds of your week, sleep and work. You are left each week with 56 hours for you to do everything else. 56 hours, okay? Now, now let, me, let me ask you this here. Be honest with me. How many of you are into social media? Okay, if you're in a social media, the average amount of time that an American spends on social media is 17 hours. Okay, so let's say you're in the social media, you spend about 17 hours in social media, you have 
39 hours left to do groceries, to take your kids to soccer practice, um, to go out with your friends on the weekend. That's all you have left in a week. 39 hours for the rest of the stuff that you need to do. And oftentimes on a good week, after you do everything, there's this left. And you're like, wow, one hour. Wow, this was a great week. I didn't over budget. I'm still within budget, one week. And what do you do with that hour? When it comes on Sunday, you're like, let me look at the first, a lot of Christians are like this. They open Weather Channel. Man, today's a boating day. Look at the wind. Got church, one hour left. I got one hour left. Uh, I've already been at church like three weeks ago, so I can probably afford not to go one more time. Next month, I'll start going to church again, you know. And so you take that hour and you spend it that way. Think about that. Now, now think about it. Now, 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 now I, I, want you, I want you to get this. This is a big problem, guys. Church attendance, as I said to you, in America in the last four or five decades have been declining consistently. The pandemic has accelerated that. Prior to the pandemic, the average, a church attender, I'm talking about you guys. I'm not talking about people that are not at Crossbridge or, or do not go to church regularly. And by the way, here at Crossbridge, we count one Sunday a month as a regular attender, okay? And most churches do too. The average for a person like yourself is to attend church one point Sundays a month. 1.5 Sundays a month, sorry. 1.5 Sundays a month. That means that there are some months that you do two Sundays a month, and then there are Sundays, and then there are months that you just do one Sunday a month. And you go back and forth. Last month you did two Sundays. This month you do one Sunday. This is pre-pandemic. Now it's 0.8%. That means that the average church attender doesn't even go to church once a month. Now, look, correct me if I'm wrong, but do a self-evaluation in your own lives and tell me if this is not true as an average. Now, now, I don't know about you, but if you devote 0.8 hours a month to improving your golfing skills, will you get better, Doug? If you devote 0.8 hours a month to, to do your schoolwork, are you going to get better? No, you're not. You're not going to get better on anything if you just do 0.8 hours more than you're doing right now a month. You're not going to get better in, in any way. And yet we think that spiritually it's different. It is not different. That's why the church is in the state that it is today. It's because we have found other things more important than Jesus. And that's why he says here, uh, look, verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Evil, the evil that we practice, we're involved in in life are not necessarily horrible things. Are good things turn ultimate. It's too much work. It's too much focus on my image. It's too much focus on other things other than Jesus. It becomes evil. It becomes controlling. I begin to build my identity around these things. And I stop worshiping Jesus. So you've got to focus on worship. And there's only one hope if you're going to focus on the Father who's at the seat at the table. So that 
you are beginning to thrive as a person and you're building the church, there's only one way is that you have to focus more on Jesus because it's through Jesus that you are a part of God's family, only through Jesus. He says there in verse 18, this is the will of God the Father in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. We are not here if, not, if it were not for Jesus. We do not have a seat at the table if it were not for Jesus. If Jesus did not give up his seat at the table, we could not have a seat at the table. If we didn't come through Jesus, we didn't come. If you don't come through Jesus, you can never come. It's only through Jesus that we come. And Jesus is committed to revealing the Father to us. That's his mission. And the only way that you will keep your focus on the Father, that there would be a, um, a, 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 a restoration of the importance of corporate worship and deep relationships in my life, is if I focus on that which Jesus has done for me, how sacrificial it was for me to take a seat at the table, for me to be a part of the family of God. It's only through Jesus. And to the degree, listen, to the degree, you know, think about the whole shalom idea here, building shalom in the church. To the degree that I focus on Jesus, I come closer to you and you come closer to me. I did this little, you know, um, silly drawing here. This reflects my thinking, you know, like each line reflects our lives. And some of us are further away from Jesus than uh, than others, and uh, some of us are more distant, geographically speaking, from one point to another, to uh, others. But the only way that we get closer to one another is as we draw near to Jesus. See, the, the distance point begins to shrink, and we begin to come closer to one another. You know, it reminds me of this story. Uh, this is my closing story. Uh, in this discipleship material that I read many years ago, it talks about the story of these two brothers, these two brothers, uh, when their dad died, they were supposed to split the assets and the business in half, and they did not. One brother screwed the other brother over and took everything. And that, that brother that was wrong had vowed that if he ever crossed path with his brother in the future, he was going to destroy him. He looked for opportunities to destroy his brother, who had moved far away from him and was very distant emotionally from him, he said, I will ruin his life if I ever have an opportunity. And many years had passed and he had never taken care of that trauma and that resentment had grown deep, grown deep into his heart. And, uh, he, he, you know, it would affect his health, his sleep, everything. But one day he went on a business trip to New York City in Manhattan. He's walking down this busy street and on the other side of the road, he sees his brother walking in his direction. And his fists clench, and he says, now it's my opportunity to do something about this. And so he starts moving in the direction of his brother who cannot see him because he's too busy with whatever else he's doing. And as he gets close to his brother, he begins to see the resemblance of his father's face and his brother's face. And as he begins to see his father and his brother's face, the mannerisms the gray hairs that have grown through the years, his heart began to melt. What was supposed to turn into a fight in the middle of a busy city becomes an amazing scene of redemption where these two brothers are hugging one another and crying. And 
restoring the broken relationships and redeeming the lost years at that very moment. It was the catalyst for a real reconciliation. And all it took was for one to see the father's face and there's brother's face. And, and my hope here today is that you would be able to see the face of the father and the brother and sister that's sitting across from you and the one that's sitting next to you. That you would see the father's resemblance in their face and that that would melt your heart and would give you a true passion, a restored passion for his family. And that it would create and open new opportunities for you to grow closer to God as you grow, grow closer to one another. And that there would be a restored passion for his family, his church, especially the one that's expressed locally here, Crossbridge Church. It's my prayer for you today. I hope that God has spoken to you. Will you pray with me? Father, we are, we are indeed grateful for how you have assembled us as a family. And, and, and we acknowledge that uh, we are very different in different matters of life from the rest of uh, us that's sitting here in this room and we have different walks and we come from different races, different socioeconomic statuses. And, but you have assembled us into a family. And that's so unique about uh, the church. And, and Father, we, we want to lean into that. Uh, Father, we don't want this to be a a reason for frustrations and, and a reason for disappointment and, and a justification for our spiritual stagnancy or lack of involvement thereof with this local body, Father. We, we, we want to be healed of that. And uh, we ask you that you would do that by reminding us, reminding us who we are. We are your children and we are here focused on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand up and, and let's return our focus to the Father who is ahead of this table, who is assembling us as his family, is calling us together to worship and to love him.